what do the things that you do show about the kind of wisdom that controls your thinking? Last week, we looked at how the tongue reflects what's in our hearts. The person who is righteous, who is growing to be mature in the way that James desires his readers to arrive at, is someone who has begun to master the tongue because by God's grace, he has also begun to master the desires of the heart. When I say the desires of the heart, I mean that the things that are going on within us, not in the thing that pumps blood through our body, but in our inward person, the things that are going on there come out in our words. And James says that's a checkpoint for whether or not you are someone who has a mature faith, whether you're someone who has any faith at all, or uh, whether you're potentially someone who your tongue shows that your profession of faith is false. And when he says in chapter 3 and verse 6 that the tongue sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell, he was saying essentially... If what your tongue speaks reflects a heart that has the values and desires and motivations that drive Satan and his demons, you have no part in God. So what does your tongue say about you? In the same way, he's going to have a contrast in verses 13 through 18 between earthly wisdom, man's wisdom, even as he'll say demonic wisdom, and God's wisdom, the wisdom that comes from above. And so he starts out with this question, who among you is wise and understanding? Which parallels, I think, what it says in chapter 3 and verse 1 about who is qualified to be a teacher, and verse 2 about is someone a perfect man or a mature man. So there are those who say that they are ready to teach, those who say that they are mature as believers, but their tongue denies that profession. In the same way, James is going to say there are those who claim to be wise and understanding, but if their wisdom is shown to be the wrong kind of wisdom, it doesn't matter how wise you are in the wrong kind of wisdom, it doesn't honor God. How do you demonstrate godly wisdom, mature belief, the sort of faith that James says is real, that is shown by works? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Sometimes I think when we come to something like chapter 2 where it says faith without works, we assume that that means that he just has faith, but he doesn't do anything good or bad. But the reality is if we're not doing good works, what sort of works are we doing? We're doing works that displease God. And in the same way, those sorts of works demonstrate an allegiance to a kind of wisdom that is not from God. Who among you is wise in understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But, verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. What does that mean? There's a lot of phrases in this section that you have to pause and think about. What does it mean that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart could lead you to being arrogant and lying against the truth. What does he mean by that? I think what's going on here is he's saying 
If your outward profession is someone who follows God, knows God, loves God, but what's really in your heart is no love for God, no love for people around you, or at least that's the majority of the time, you're not really loving God, you're not really loving the people around you, you're characterized then by pride, because often such people are boasting in their self-righteousness, and there is a lying against the truth. There is a hypocrisy. Verse 17, wisdom from above is without hypocrisy, but wisdom from below, wisdom from the earth, demonic wisdom, is characterized by a hypocrisy that pretends to be spiritual, that pretends to be even godly, without really having any allegiance to God. Think about what it says in James 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe and shudder. Is it possible for someone to have a profession of faith and have a right, at a basic level, understanding of God and who he is, and yet really not be someone who's following God? James 2.19 says there are those who make a right profession and have some knowledge of truth, but if it does not change their lives... They don't know God. In the same way, if your life is characterized by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, you are boasting, which God opposes, because it says in a number of times in this book that God opposes the pride of the rich, of the ungodly, of those who are not paying attention to God. God opposes their pride. God exalts the humble, supports the humble, helps the humble. If there are these wrong thoughts, desires, motivations in your heart that lead you to boast, and as a result lead you to lie against the truth, we have to pause and examine our hearts. Is it possible for a Christian to have some elements of these things in his or her life? I think the answer is yes. If our lives are completely ruled by the things that James is condemning here, we have no part in Christ. If our lives are often characterized by these things, we have a lot of repenting to do. And if they are occasionally characterized by these things, we ought not think that's okay. Because James says, much as it says in the book of Proverbs, there are two ways to live. There's the way of wisdom that leads to God's blessing, there's the way of foolishness that leads to destruction, and you cannot straddle both paths. You're going one way or the other at any given point in life. You say, well, what about the naive person in Proverbs? The naive person is sitting on the fence and falling under the side of evil. Why? Because he doesn't have God's wisdom to guard his heart, and because potentially he's not genuinely converted, and so he's just going his own way. He's foolish. He's immature. Sometimes we think immaturity is excusable. But the reality is immaturity is either a mark of unbelief or it is a mark of being very early in your Christian walk. It's not a state we should be content to remain in. And so when James says these things are lying against the truth, it's something we ought to take seriously. He describes the wisdom further. It is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. When he says that which comes down from above, we ought to, I think, remember back to what he said in 
chapter 1 and verse 17. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. James is saying earthly wisdom is not from God. It does not come down from above. It is not good. What characterizes it? It is earthly. It pertains to this life. It's not always wrong. There are people that are very skillful at navigating the circumstances of life. They just do it in a way that doesn't honor God. There are people who are good at lying. There are people who are good at taking advantage of other people. There are people who are good at putting on a show in front of people to achieve a certain goal. And there is a kind of wisdom in that, but it's not God's wisdom. This sort of wisdom is earthly. The second word there, natural, it's not natural in the sense of like pertaining to like trees and things outside. It's natural in the sense of being sensual or according to the old way of life. Think about the way Paul uses it. The natural man doesn't understand the things of God, their foolishness to him. That's the sort of natural that James is describing here. Wisdom that is not from God is natural. It is sometimes seems reasonable to us apart from understanding God's truth, but it's wrong. And then the last thing where it is demonic, again, there can be elements of truth to it. James 2.19, you believe that God is one. Is that true? Yes. Are the demons converted and trusting in God? No. And so if our lives are characterized by a wisdom that is holy of this earth, according to, as it says in Ephesians 2, the desires and thoughts and all of those things connected with this world, if it is no different from the demons in terms of the effect that it produces in our lives, as in it does not produce obedience to God, but rather we continue living exactly the way that we did before we profess to know God, James says you cannot be ruled by that kind of wisdom. How do you know if you're being ruled by that kind of wisdom? Verse 16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. What is some of the examples of every evil thing that we might see characterizing someone who is driven by jealousy and selfish ambition. James 5 gives, or uh, Galatians 5 gives us a list. The deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a sobering list. If our lives are characterized by a hatred for God and other people that manifests itself in always looking out for ourselves, always being angry with people around us, always trying to get our own way, all those sorts of things, what sort of wisdom are we being ruled by? We are being ruled by an evil kind of wisdom that is not from God. 
there is disorder. Think about creation. God sets everything the way it's supposed to be. There is beauty. There is design. There is harmony. Everything is working together. Sin comes into the Garden of Eden. What happens alongside it? Now there's lying. Now there's hiding from God. There's shame. There's all of these other sorts of things. There is now death. There are thorns and thistles and conflicts in marriages and laziness because we don't want to do the work that God assigned us to. All of these things flow out of the curse of sin. And so when James says there is disorder, think about the contrast in the garden before Adam and Eve sinned. It was very good. And in the chapters that come afterward, what happens? Cain kills Abel. Lamech kills several people. People's thoughts are only evil continually. God sends a flood. Noah and his family come out of it. Noah gets drunk. God calls Abraham. Abraham is fearful of Pharaoh and sort of kind of hides his relationship with his wife. Lot rejects being allied with Abraham. And the list goes on. You go to the, the lives of the people of Israel. So many times there is disorder and chaos and all of these sorts of things. And that's contrary to God's nature and God's good creation. Think about even in the instructions that Paul gives the church at Corinth. There is chaos. There is all sorts of upheaval because everyone is doing what they want. They are driven by a selfish ambition that says, I should be the focus of attention. Whatever I want should be what's happened. And that destroys individuals, that destroys churches, that drags the name of God down in the sight of all who are watching. There is disorder, and there is every evil thing. Think, I was just going through this with uh, the Bible class over Bethany. Think about verse 14. If you have jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. Think about the story of Ananias and Sapphira. What drove them to do what they did? They were jealous of Barnabas. Barnabas got recognized as the son of encouragement. They said, we want to also be recognized in the church for our generosity, but we don't want to have to put out as much sacrifice as Barnabas did to achieve that recognition. So we're going to sell some property that we have, take some of it to the church, maybe just even a small amount, and act as though we have generously helped the church by our gift. Think about what Peter condemned them for. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. You have lied against the truth. And so by way of illustration, if we come into the context of God's people and the reason that we do the things that we do is so people look at us and say, what a nice person, give us a pat on the back, all of those sorts of things. Is it wrong if they do that? No. But if that's the only thing that motivates us to do God's work, we don't love God, we love ourselves. And this is a serious thing, because if you have people who outwardly look like they are following God, 
and inwardly are only living for themselves, how long do you think that's going to last? Look, <laughs> look at the beginning of chapter 4. We'll get into this next week. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? The result is what happened at the church at Corinth, right? I want to be known for my spiritual gifts and forget about that Paul guy because he's not an eloquent speaker and I'm going to even boast in my sin because it's not about the church, it's not about God, it's about me. In contrast, the wisdom from above. The wisdom from above is wisdom from God, wisdom from heaven. What characterizes that kind of wisdom. First of all, it is pure. It is not driven or motivated by earthly desires. It is driven and motivated by what is acceptable to God. It is pure. God's word in Psalm 119 is described as pure and as the means by which we achieve purity in our lives. And so God's wisdom matches up with his word, obviously, because God is the one who gave us his word. We need to have wisdom that is pure. Wisdom from above is also peaceable. How do you know if your life is characterized by God's wisdom? Is your life peaceful? Do you seek to make peace or do you seek to create conflict wherever you go? Look at the next verse. The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is an important point to James. He's saying, if you have no desire for peace, at least in part, you've missed the boat on what it means to have the wisdom from God. Why is peace something that reflects God's wisdom? Think about what we looked at in Hebrews 7 this morning. How is Christ described in terms of his being the fulfillment of the type of Melchizedek? Melchizedek is described as being king of Salem, which means king of peace. Christ is the prince of peace, and if we are going to be like him, we need to similarly be characterized by peace. Peace is not about ignoring problems. Peace is not about being okay with sin when it is destroying your own life or someone else's. But peace is saying... My life is not about me, it's about God, and what I want is not most important, what God wants is most important, and so if there's some sort of conflict, I have to say, am I willing to see something happen that is not my desire because God is a higher priority than what I want? And that's a hard thing for us to do because we want to win, we want our own way. What we should all desire instead is God's way, and then we would all be aligned with the same thing. The challenge is figuring out what that is in any given situation, right? Because someone may have one idea about how something should go, and someone else may have another idea. We have to follow the authority of God as he's laid out scriptural commands and principles, we have to follow, for example, in the home. Um, if a husband asks his wife to do something 
and she thinks it's maybe not the greatest idea, but it's not sinful, then she needs to do that. Recognizing that if he makes the wrong call, he's the one who's answering to God for it. Or if he makes the wrong call just on a practical issue, he's the one who has to fix it. Or a wife can say, you know what? I'm going to do my own thing, and I'm going to nag him about it until he does what I want. Is that promoting peace? No. Guys, if you thought you were going to get off the hook, you're not. Maybe in the context of work. There's people you just don't get along with. They're difficult. They're frustrating. Whatever else. If they're doing things that aren't right, those need to be addressed with. But if they're just doing things that are not the way that you prefer that they should be done, are you going to follow the authority structure that God has put you as a part of? This is a challenging situation. What about children? When your parents ask you to do something, you can do it in a way that makes your life and their life miserable. And that's not promoting peace. Or you can do as they have asked you to do joyfully, willingly, and the first time they ask, and you can promote the sort of peace that ought to characterize a Christian home. What else is a characteristic of this kind of wisdom? This wisdom is gentle. Uh, if I was to describe wisdom that was gentle, at least in the early part of his life, I would put something like, not Peter. Right? Because Peter was not particularly gentle. Blurts out whatever comes to his mind, uh, tries to get the disciples to do what he wants at certain points, all of these sorts of things. Gentle describes Peter after Christ forgives him in John 21, and he is leading the uh, apostles in Acts 1 and 2 and following. He has finally learned to control his enthusiasm and his energy and use it in a way that honors God. Sometimes people think being gentle is the ability to pick up something heavy and slam it right down again. Being gentle is the strength to pick up something heavy and set it down carefully. Whether that be with your actions, with your words, whatever else. So particularly for the guys, are you characterized as being gentle? Our culture values strength, but not strength with any measure of self-control. And strength apart from self-control is not gentleness, and is not the sort of wisdom that God is talking about here through James. This wisdom from above is reasonable. Have you ever tried talking to someone and you can't convince them of anything because they've made up their mind and they're unwilling to listen? That's not godly wisdom. Godly wisdom says the priority is what is true, even if it steps on my toes wakes me up, hurts my feelings, makes me realize how badly I've done something, is it reasonable 
Are you willing to listen to truth and obey it? Full of mercy and good fruits. Natural wisdom says, if I can get ahead, I'm going to seize the opportunity. Think about the parable that Jesus gave about the guy who had been forgiven a huge debt. What is his first action? He goes and finds somebody who owes him a much smaller debt and says, you know what? You're going to sweat it out until you give me everything you owe me. That's the opposite of mercy. Here's the bottom line. If God has shown us mercy, we ought to show other people mercy. Do you automatically assume that the reason someone is doing something around you is calculated to harm you? Because part of being merciful is recognizing that we don't know everything, we need to be patient with people around us, and sometimes we need to let God work on our hearts before we try to fix everything that is not the way that it ought to be in them. Again, I'm not saying don't confront sin. We ought to confront sin. I'm just saying sometimes we can walk into two identical situations, and if we have an attitude of mercy, we will be patient with somebody, and if we have an attitude that is not mercy, we will come in there ready just to go after them to get what we want. Is your life characterized by mercy and by good fruits? Uh, in some senses, that sums up a lot of what is being said in this short verse. But I think it is tied with the idea of mercy in this sense. God has shown mercy to us and given us salvation. And the point of us getting saved is not simply so that we go to heaven. It's so that we know Jesus and live in a way that honors him and become more and more like him. And so if we have no mercy, we're not going to be doing good works because we're not having any attention paid to the salvation that we have received. Those two things go hand in hand. Unwavering. There's two parallel passages in James already in this book, I think. Chapter 1 and verse 6. He must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And then chapter 2 and verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our Lord, glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. How are those two things connected? If we are ruled not by truth, but by what seems right to us, we will be driven back and forth as our moods and our desires and our thoughts change, and we will treat people badly according to the standards of this world instead of according to the standards of what God requires of us. Wisdom from above is unwavering. It says, here is what God has said is true. That's what I'm going to follow. Not I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this. And there's no consistency. How does it describe God at the end of chapter 1? With whom there is no variation or shifting shadow in verse 17. So if we're going to be like God, 
There's a sense in which our lives ought not to be all over the place with regard to what we do and how we speak and, and the things that we think and what we value. And if we are unwavering, we will come into a situation, we'll say, how does God's truth say I ought to respond to this person? Doesn't matter if that person is the most difficult person in the world to get along with. God says, love your neighbors yourself. If, our, we, if we're driven by what seems right to us, we'll say, I love my neighbor as myself as long as it's convenient and when it helps me out. If we are driven by the unchanging standard of what God has revealed, his truth, we will do what God has called us to do regardless of the circumstances. And then that last phrase, without hypocrisy, stands in direct contrast to being arrogant and lying against the truth. Ungodly wisdom inevitably leads to hypocrisy because in the context of God's people, you are trying to present a good image of yourself that does not match what's going on in your heart. So if you are ruled by earthly wisdom, you're going to walk into the assembly, you're going to pretend to be something that you're not, pretend that you love fellow church members, pretend that you want to serve God, pretend that you love God, and the only reason you showed up is because people will think badly if you don't. The only reason you showed up is because you hope that someone will give you something that makes you feel good about yourself. The only reason that you showed up is so that you can perhaps accomplish some personal goal. It is fascinating and saddening and a horrific thing that it is possible for us to do right things for reasons that are completely wrong. There are people who want to do certain things, have certain positions within the church simply because it, of how it makes them feel and not because they think they can serve God well doing that. And James says, if that's what drives you, there's a huge disconnect between what God says you ought to be and do and what your actions eventually reveal about your thoughts, about the kind of wisdom that rules your life. We already talked about verse 18. And so I had attention when I was looking at chapter 3 to 4, because as I think I said last week, 3, 1, all the way down to probably 4, 10, is kind of all along the same lines. What does your tongue show about your heart? What do your actions reveal about the kind of wisdom that rules your thoughts? What do the things that are going on in your relationship with other believers reveal about the wrong desires that are driving you? All these things are kind of connected. James is saying, when things pop up in life, the words that we say, the conflicts that come into our lives, they reveal what's going on inside of us. They reveal oftentimes that there is something wrong with what we want, with what we think, and with what we are choosing to do. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what do our words reveal about our hearts? That was from last week. This week, 
What do our actions, words, the course of our lives, what does it reveal about the kind of wisdom that is important to us? Is it a wisdom that is characterized by jealousy and ambition and a focus on self? Or is it a wisdom that is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, a desire to serve other people, a desire to love God? How do you know? Look at your life. Is it full of conflict and anger and all of these other sorts of things? Is it full of, when it comes to the tongue, things you, you speak to tear people down and to make yourself look good and all those sorts of things? Or do you speak to build people up, to speak truth to them? Do you act in a way that shows that you desire peace and that you're willing to not be the first in line and that you're willing to be someone who is true because you're living your life according to what's true that God has spoken instead of going back and forth and, and doing whatever you want? So look at what, what James says in verse 16. Is there disorder in every evil thing characterizing your life? Or is there pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy kind of things characterizing your life? That's the test. It's not a question I can fully answer for you because I don't know what you're thinking in your heart. You do. God does, and it will come out sooner or later. Let's make sure that the kind of wisdom that rules our lives is that which is from above and not natural wisdom that's so easy for us to fall back into the patterns of. What kind of wisdom honors God? The wisdom that comes from God. Let's pray. Lord, it is easy for us to be proud. It is easy for us to put ourselves forward. It is easy for us to fall back into old habits that do not honor you and do not fit with a genuine faith and certainly not with the maturity of faith that you desire us to be growing into. Instead, Lord, help us to live in a way that is pure and peaceable, without hypocrisy, all of these words that characterize wisdom that is from you, which is ultimately, as we see in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, which is another way of saying, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself? Not because we're bound by the Old Testament law, but because that's the thing that you have been after from your people from the beginning, and it's only through Christ that we're able to come even close to accomplishing those things that you expect of us. Lord, we fall far short even now of the standard that you held out for us. And that could tempt us to be looking inward in self-pity, looking outward comparing ourselves with one another. But it ought instead to help us to look upward and to say, Lord, I need your help. Grow my faith, drive out the selfishness that so easily motivates all that I do and am. Make me like Christ, who in the supreme example of not selfishness, laid down his life for the good of others, 
not merely in a sense of helping people out or something like that, but because it was the only way that we could re uh, receive salvation. And in a far smaller echo of that, help us to be willing to sacrifice in the way that we show love to one another. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.